Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the second episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jessica Young to discuss a common term around opioid use disorder, MAT. We will find out just exactly what MAT is, who qualifies for this type of treatment, how it's helpful, and what's coming up in innovations for opioid treatments here in Tennessee. Let's get to it. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee with TIPQC. So today we're going to focus on the opioid epidemic going on in Tennessee, especially how it relates to mothers and babies here in our state. So um, one phrase you hear thrown around a lot is MAT. So as somebody who works with MAT and works with these moms. Um, Can you tell us what MAT stands for, what it is? Sure. So medication-assisted treatment is what MAT stands for. And medication-assisted treatment is the medications that are used to treat opioid use disorder. Uh, Opioid use disorder is in under the broader heading of substance use disorder. And of course, there can be many substances that people can have problems with. But in terms of opioids, um, there are medications that help with the cravings, the withdrawal symptoms that people can experience when they are physically and psychologically dependent on opioids, that class of medication. So when we talk about medication-assisted treatment, we're talking about the medications that are used to help keep someone um, from withdrawing, from being sick, from craving, to kind of get out of that cycle. And so examples of that would be methadone is a commonly used uh, medication for opioid use disorder, and buprenorphine, which the brand names that are commonly thrown around are Suboxone or Subutex. And so those are the two most common medication-assisted treatments that we use in Tennessee. So when a mother goes on this MAT, the medicated-assisted treatment, is this a permanent situation? Do they have a timeline to come off of that medication? How does that work? It is not a permanent situation or permanent treatment plan. And really, I think it's very important that medication, any the medications that are used for medication-assisted treatment are really uh, thought of as one tool within the toolbox to treat opioid use disorder. So medications alone do not treat the addiction to opioids, but uh, just as important 
are the individual and group therapy and counseling, treating and any underlying mental health dis disorders like depression or anxiety um, or tra trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, and, uh, and treating any kind of health issues as well. So it's a very important tool, but not the only thing that is important in dealing with the treatment of opioid use disorder. So what's your background with MAT? Have you always been involved? Is this something relatively new to your um, practice? I became involved in the prescription and medication-assisted treatment in 2011 is when that started, so almost 10 years now. I'm getting up there. Um, for me, it started, I'm an obstetrician gynecologist by training, and I was finishing residency right when we were really starting to feel the effects of the opioid epidemic in Tennessee. Right around that time, we were starting to notice the significant increase in babies born affected by neonatal abstinence syndrome, so being born and, and going through withdrawal. And, uh, you know, in many ways, I kind of consider that the canary in the coal mine. It was one of the first indicators of the opioid crisis in Tennessee and one of the first indicators of how the opioid, the overprescription of pain medications and the subsequent uh, development of addiction for many people in that scenario, how that played out to cause that increase in, in babies affected by neonatal abstinence syndrome. And in 2011, what I was seeing, or before that when I was in residency, is what we would see is we would see women coming into the emergency department in withdrawal, in crisis, uh, wanting help, wanting treatment. They would get stabilized inpatient on either methadone or buprenorphine. Um, buprenorphine was relatively newer then. And then we were finding it was, once they were discharged from the hospital, it was difficult for them to find an obstetrician that was familiar with that, uh, those classes of medication or that was comfortable dealing with that class of medica medication. It was often difficult for them to find an outpatient MAT provider that would take care of someone who was pregnant. And so we decided at Vanderbilt that we needed a clinic to that focused on the care of this patient population. And so when I finished my residency, I did some additional training with one of our amazing psychiatrists, addiction psychiatrists um, at Vanderbilt. And I got my buprenorphine waiver, which is a special waiver from the DEA to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. And um, very soon after that, started seeing this patient population. Um, since then, uh, I've continued to grow this practice and I've become board certified in addiction medicine. And it, it's really something I'm passionate about improving the care that we deliver to this patient population, pregnant women and, and postpartum women. 
So speaking of the population, who exactly qualifies for MAT? Is that anyone that has an opioid addiction or is there a specific? Anybody with opioid use disorder qualifies for treatment with medication-assisted treatment. There are levels of disease severity with opioid use disorder, mild, moderate, and severe. And in general, for moderate and severe opioid use disorder, medication-assisted treatment is recommended. For It could also be used for mild opioid use disorder, uh, but it is possible to use just other treatment modalities for that category of of patients. There are abstinence-based treatments, which are available and traditionally were often used in a rehab setting. So in a, for example, like a 30-day residential program where someone would go in, they would detox from whatever opioids they were taking. And sometimes medication-assisted treatment would be used to help them detox. But often in those settings, people were discharged without any kind of long-term medication or medication-assisted treatment. Um, There is another type of medication-assisted treatment called naltrexone, which is an opioid blocker. And that is something that is also, also can be used, just works a little bit differently than the other medication-assisted treatments. And that currently is considered experimental in pregnancy, but we're starting to get studies coming out. And I expect that within the next few years, that will be offered more frequently to pregnant women. So what does the data show here in Tennessee about the efficacy of medication-assisted treatment? Well, in general, we know that Opioid use disorder is a chronic disease. So much like diabetes or high blood pressure, it's not a disease that is treated for a short period of time and then just goes away. It doesn't mean that someone has to be on medication forever. Like with certain types of diabetes, if, for example, if someone has certain types of diabetes, if they make diet and lifestyle modifications, they could potentially get off um, their medication. Same thing with opioid use disorder. With the proper support, with the proper behavioral health management and resources, it is possible that someone would need to be on medication-assisted treatment long-term. However, there are people with very severe opioid use disorder that do require longer term treatment with medications and that keeps them stable and working and able to parent and keeps them from overdosing and and, and really is a lifesaver. So when we think about the relapsing nature of opioid use disorder, we know that 70% of people relapse. And We know that when we compare, when studies have compared people who were seeking treatment, who got put on medication-assisted treatment versus those 
that don't get put on medication-assisted treatment, we know their relapse rates, those that are on medication-assisted treatment, their relapse rates are lower than those who have a abstinence-based treatment um, regimen. However, I think it's very important that every patient is an individual. This is about shared decision-making. For some people, it is very important for them in their recovery not to be on any medications. And so really having a patient-centered conversation regarding risks and benefits, what their social situation is like, are they around other people that are using all the time, are they going to be uh, living in a long-term treatment facility, all those things are really important to make an individual decision around being on medication-assisted treatment. During pregnancy, we used to say that pregnant women could not withdraw completely off of opioids. And so uh, for a while, we said that medication-assisted treatment was the only option Erroneously, for a while, we um, the medical community would tell patients that uh, withdrawing or, or going through a detoxification process was risky for their pregnancy or would increase the risk of stillbirth. What we know now is that the risk of detoxification or medically assisted withdrawal is what we call the official way to do it, <laughs> um, is not risky from a pregnancy loss perspective, but increases the risk of relapse if the person isn't really engaged in a really intensive recovery program. Women do better with medication-assisted withdrawal if they are in a residential facility often um, because it's much easier to uh, maintain a substance-free life if you're not in a situation where you're being exposed to other people using or that substance being read readily available. Again, these are generalizations. Every individual woman or person is different. What can you tell us about harm reduction and how it plays a role in opioid use disorder in pregnancy? Yeah, so harm reduction in the setting of substance use disorder, and this could be true for any substance, is about reducing harm. It's about techniques and counseling and education and services that are put in place to reduce the risk of the harms of a, using a particular substance. So for example, needle exchanges, needle exchange programs are an example of harm reduction. Uh, they are put into place in communities that have significant needle IV injection drug use. And by allowing for people that are using to come in and exchange their needles and to get clean syringes, what that does is that decreases the risk of infection, it decreases the risk of HIV, hepatitis C. So it's about say, meeting people where they are and, and saying, you have you're going to continue to engage in this risky behavior right now. We're going to give you education about treatment and, and what can be done to help you, but let's keep you alive. <laughs> let's keep you as safe as you can until you're ready to make that next step. Medication-assisted treatment is, is in that same category of harm reduction in that it's using medications to keep 
people from having cravings, from having withdrawal. We're trying to decrease relapse. We're trying to decrease people being in a situation where they accidentally overdose. We're trying to keep people engaged in their recovery so they can, can keep doing that hard work, that hard internal work until they are ready to make the next step. One thing I want to talk about today is access issues to medication-assisted treatment. Mm-hmm. So um, clearly not everyone has your expertise. So where do they get this treatment and, and what hurdles do they have to receiving that kind of treatment? Yeah, well, there are several barriers to medication-assisted treatment in our state. I think the great thing is that something that our health department and our state Medicaid providers and our Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services are all really focused on getting people more access. And for a long time, there was a limited insurance coverage for medication-assisted treatment that has significantly changed. But what that meant was that in certain areas of our state and certain counties, the only options to get medication-assisted treatment were cash-based clinics that didn't take insurance and sometimes charged quite a bit of money to go and monthly get a prescription. And that's really a barrier for a lot of people. A lot of people don't have that that cash to be able to, to spend that money. On the converse side of that, um, there are a lot of people who are uninsured in our state, and that can make it difficult to access services that even where a clinic does take insurance. So financial is an issue, insurance coverage is an issue, and then just access to providers in general. There are counties that just don't have any addiction treatment services. So there's a lot of focus now on telehealth, how that can be used to uh, improve access to and bring access to our rural counties, which sometimes don't have medication-assisted treatment, and really making sure that the medication-assisted treatment that's available is comprehensive, that it incorporates counseling, it incorporates behavioral health treatment, that it's more than, than getting a prescription. The, the prescription is really important. That's that Often that's the first step that gets people in the door and gets them feeling normal in, in many ways. People will describe it and allows them to do that other work. I'm sure there are a lot of misconceptions about medication-assisted treatment. So what are some of those misconceptions and, and how do we combat those? Yeah, I think for uh, what I hear commonly um, from uh, different people is that medication-assisted treatment is just substituting one drug for another. You hear that a lot. Um, I think that, you know, since medication-assisted treatment started in the United States in the 70s with methadone and the response to the heroin epidemic of the 70s, ever since then, there's this idea that in both in the lay community and in some, for some people in the medical community, that it is a just a legal way to abuse drugs. <laughs> and I think that's really unfortunate because medication-assisted treatment has really been shown to save lives. It has been shown to reduce overdose rates. 
And we even have some evidence that for people who are on buprenorphine medication-assisted treatment, that they are less likely to overdose, even if they do continue to use in addition to taking that medication. And I think that there's just a general misunderstanding about how people feel when they're on medication-assisted treatment, and that leads to stigma regarding medication-assisted treatment itself. There's just there's a lot of stigma about addiction in general, about substance use disorder in general. There's a lot of stigma and misconception that it's a choice that people make and that they can just choose to not use anymore, which really doesn't adequately take into account the biological and biochemical changes that happen in someone's brain after they use substances, particularly for an extended period of time, and how those changes in the brain really change and negatively impact the way people make decisions, the way they're able to just kind of have executive functioning. (laughs) I think that the stigma overall against substance use disorder really has driven a lot of the stigma around medication-assisted treatment and made abstinence-based treatment a preference. And that's true even for people with themselves within the substance use or recovery community. Uh, For a long time, even in in A groups and A groups, other support groups, there was a real kind of shaming of, of people who were on medication-assisted treatment, and uh, people would be told, "You're not really in recovery. You really, you can't count that as your uh, your sober date or um, towards your chip." I think that that's really unfortunate because addiction is a disease of isolation. The more that we shame people, the more that we criticize people's recovery journey, the harder it is for people to engage and and really make those first initial steps. So just in case we have anyone that's listening that may be facing opioid use disorder and feels, you know, isolated and doesn't feel comfortable stepping out. I mean, how many people are receiving medication assisted treatment? I mean, they're surely not alone. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Yes. Medication-assisted treatment is very common. There are clinics throughout the state. I mean, I can't give you an exact number on how many people are on medication-assisted treatment, but it's a lot. <laughs> and I would, I would encourage people who are struggling with substance use disorder, um, whether you're pregnant or not, to seek out, talk to your primary care doctor, talk to your nurse practitioner, talk to your obstetrician. You could call the Tennessee Red Line, which is a hotline that is targeted towards people with substance use disorder. It's a toll-free number, 1-800-889-9789. And it's staffed by people who are familiar with the issue of addiction and can point people in the right direction towards community resources. There's also an app called Aunt Bertha that also links people with treatment resources for substance use disorder. So we've encouraged people that maybe have opioid use disorder for themselves, but for those of us that may not have opioid use disorder, but we have loved ones that Mm -hmm. do, are there tips to notice it 
with our loved ones or how do we help them um, seek treatment? I'm sure you can't just bully them into going to get care, Um, but how do, how do we help? Yeah. So you're right. Someone has, in order to really benefit from treatment, someone has to want to be in treatment. And usually in my experience, shaming someone doesn't work, you know, yelling at someone doesn't work, uh, begging and pleading, like none of that really works. I think helping someone to realize the consequences of their substance use is, is important. And, you know, particularly if they have financial uh, repercussions or legal repercussions or family repercussions, making sure that they have access to the phone numbers to call, the different clinics and and mental health and addiction providers in their area. I think also making sure that they know that treatment's available, making sure they know that treatment works. I think also having boundaries, having boundaries is important. And, and so seeking support for oneself as a family member or a friend who loves someone with a substance use disorder. And so there are groups and organizations like um, Al-Anon that are support groups for people whose loved ones have substance use disorder. And that can be really helpful to hear what other people have gone through. And because it's really hard. It's, it's really hard to see someone that you love suffering and not making the decisions necessarily that you would like them to make for themselves. And that's really hard. So having those loving boundaries. So making the person you know, know that they are loved and that they are supported but at the same time, you know, not letting them steal all your money and uh, burn down your house. <laughs> it's a fine line. I'm assuming there are some risks to doing medication-assisted treatment in pregnancy. Does that affect neonatal abstinence syndrome? Mm-hmm. Are there other risks that are there? Opioid use disorder in pregnancy is in itself risky. So someone who has opioid use disorder, their pregnancy also already has some risks. For anybody who has opioid use disorder in pregnancy, their risks can be neonatal abstinence syndrome. For someone who's not untreated, about about 70% of infants will get diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome and require treatment. For other risks could include preterm labor, the bag of water breaking early and causing a baby to deliver early intrauterine growth restriction or fetal growth restriction, which means the baby not growing well inside the uterus, uh, complications of hepatitis C, HIV, other infections from, uh, particularly from needle use with opioid use disorder, complications from poor nutrition, untreated depression, all of those things that put additional stress on a pregnancy. So when someone is in medication-assisted treatment and in treatment, their risks of all of those things decrease. So they're less likely to deliver early. They're less likely to have preterm rupture of membranes. They're less likely to have a fetus that's affected by growth restriction. All of those markers start to improve. 
the risk for women who are on methadone or buprenorphine, the risk is still there for a baby to have neonatal abstinence syndrome. In national studies, the risk of baby having neonatal abstinence syndrome and needing treatment is about 40, 45%. But then where a woman delivers make a big, makes a big difference. So if someone is on medication-assisted treatment and they are not relapsing and they're getting their prenatal care and, and they deliver at a hospital that supports keeping moms and babies together, supports breastfeeding for women that are in recovery, supports rooming in and skin to skin and all of that mother-baby bonding. We see the rates uh, that babies need treatment for neonatal abstinence syndrome significantly drop into the, the 20, 20%. And so I think it just shows that a lot of neonatal abstinence syndrome is about a stress reaction for baby. There are non-pharmacologic treatment mechanisms and so non-medicine treatment mechanisms that can really improve outcomes. For long-term effects for medication-assisted treatment on pregnancy, there's still studies that really need to be done to really help us understand that. There are some studies that don't show any difference between babies exposed to methadone and buprenorphine in the uterus compared to babies that aren't. And then there are some studies that do show some differences in head circumference in different scores on, on different kind of cognitive tests and behavior tests like hyperactivity and things like that. But I think the reason, part of the reason that is, is this very complicated. Development is super complicated. There are lots of different things that go into development, nutrition, parenting, uh, genetics, other substances that babies are exposed to in the uterus. And all of that together can really make it difficult to tease out which outcomes are due to a single substance like buprenorphine and methadone. For example, we do know that the more someone smokes during pregnancy, smokes cigarettes during pregnancy, the more likely their baby is to have withdrawal symptoms and need treatment from medication from buprenorphine or methadone. And so we know that if we can help moms stop smoking during pregnancy or reduce significantly amount the amount of nicotine they're exposed to, that itself decreases neonatal abstinence syndrome. And so I think that's just an example how complicated <laughs> that is, that there are these other substances that can play a role in the development of NAS or potentially other issues for babies. So what's on the horizon for treatment of opioid use disorder in Tennessee? And um, we'll kind of wrap up with this question. I have lots more questions for you, so we'll <laughs> have to <laughs> revisit this again. Yeah. But just what's what's on the horizon and um, where are we going? Yeah, so I think that we will continue to look at other modalities for treatment for opioid use disorder during pregnancy. We'll be looking at injectable forms of buprenorphine that are long-acting, that women only need treatment on a weekly basis. Already for opioid use disorder, for non-pregnant people, there's a monthly injection that 
is, is available and helps people not have to take a medication every day. Um, there will be more studies on naltrexone, which is an opioid blocker during pregnancy. So I think that will start to see that used more commonly. We'll also likely continue to see studies on non-medication forms of treatment and how we can best support women, pregnant women, their babies, their families in other ways, the counseling and uh, peer support, having peer navigators walk with people through treatment to really help people stay engaged and, and navigate these complicated systems that we have in, in healthcare. So I think there's a lot of exciting things. There's a lot of potential and it is exciting to be in an environment where as a state, we're really starting to understand the importance of these comprehensive approaches to the treatment of addiction. I think that we will see improved outcomes the more of these resources that we are able to provide to people. That's awesome. It sounds like some really exciting things happening and look forward to seeing how our, our numbers improve and how we can reduce this epidemic here in Tennessee. So thank you so much for your time. We will speak to you soon. Well, it's always fun talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.